Matthew 26, uh, this is our second sermon in this particular, it's a new section. Um, it's got two or three parts to it this morning. Uh, our reviews will be a little shorter than they have been for all those months. Uh, so we're going to take a big, a big view, all right? So about six months ago, we started preaching on how Jesus triumphantly entered the city of Jerusalem on the, on the Passover week. So that was on the Sunday preached on that, and then on Monday, he comes back into the temple area in Jerusalem, and he cleanses the temple of the corrupt money changers who were ripping people off and making religion about money, and so the Lord ran them out of the temple, and he taught some, and then on the Tuesday of the Passion Week, that's where we've been spending really about six months of our time, and just so much in, in, that, in that, that one day really from chapter 21 to the beginning of chapter 26. Again, that was six months of our study on that one Tuesday. And so last week, we kind of started moving forward, and by the end of today, we'll, we will have moved from Tuesday, probably the, the opening passage we're going to read here in just a moment about Judas and his betrayal. I don't know if that was that same Tuesday evening late, that he's going to meet with the chief priests, or is this on the Wednesday? The Bible doesn't write a lot about what happens on, on the Wednesday. Maybe what we're about to read, the first three verses, maybe that's on Wednesday. Not sure. But then ultimately, as we move into verse 17 this morning, we're going to move to Thursday, probably morning. And then by the time we hit verse 20 here in a moment, uh, we're going to be on Thursday evening. Uh, of the Passover. So we're now moving forward. Matthew, after spending so long on one day, he's now hitting some of these events. And so get your Bibles ready. You're hopefully you have your own copy of the Bible. You'll see the verses on the screen, but you want to be able to refer back and forth uh, as we get ready to go through this. Before I read verse 14, we're in Matthew 26, not on the screen, but look on my Bible. It's literally right across the page. What we looked at last week, Jesus began by saying that in two days is the Passover, telling his disciples, and that he's going to be crucified. So now he's put a time frame on it. In two days is the Passover, and, and he'll be crucified. So it, the, talking about what's going to lead up to him being crucified, he'll be delivered up to be crucified. That'll happen in two days from that point. Then in verses 3 through 5, we talked about that, how the chief priest and the elders met at the high priest's house, Caiaphas, to make plans on how they could, how in a stealth way, arrest Christ so that they can put him to death. So they're making their plans on a human level, and now that brings us up. And then we had this, this aside thing where Mary anointed the body of Christ and the apostles the disciples being led by Judas rebuked and scolded her and called her pouring out probably somewhere around $30,000 worth of pure perfume over the body of the Lord. And Judas calls that a waste, right? And so he's angry. But John tells us that he was, he, he says that could have been sold and given to the poor, but it's not because Judas cared anything about the poor. It was, it was because he was a thief from the very beginning. And he had the, the, the oversight of the money. And he was used to dipping into the money bag and spending it how he wanted. And so with that in mind, now we move forward to verse 24 through verse 25. If you'll read that with me, here we go. Verse 20, verse, chapter 26, verse 14. Verse 14 to 25. Here we go. Then, this is a key phrase. Remember this. We'll, we'll end with this thought. One of the twelve. Then... 
one of the 12. This is who we're talking about, one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot. I thought about that. Judas in the New Testament, I think I read one time, was a name that was probably given to roughly around 12 different people. Two of the 12 disciples are named Judas. Today, I'm probably on safe ground saying that none of us personally know anyone named Judas. Now, I'm not talking about the name Jude. The Lord's half-brother is named Jude, and we have kind of a shortened form of Judah, but I don't know anyone. You may, why would anyone name their son Judas? That's just like asking for trouble. This man has forever ruined this name. Verse 14 again. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot. So we want to separate him from the other Jude, Judas, the son of James. So he's another one of the twelve. One of the twelve, whose name was Judas, notice, went to the chief priests. They had already had a meeting because they wanted to do away with Christ. He now goes to the chief priest and said, what will you give me? What will you give me? If I deliver him over to you, I know you want to get rid of him. What would you give me if I make it possible and deliver him? I know you need him in a secluded place, not in public. I can make that happen. What would you give me? And Matthew writes, and they paid him 30 pieces of silver. So guys, what Matthew has done there, because when we put this together with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we realize is the chief priest did not put the 30 pieces of silver in Judas's hand at the moment. Matthew is projecting forward. They end up paying him 30 pieces of, of silver. They've negotiated and reached an agreement that it would be 30 pieces of silver. So that leads to verse 16. And from that moment, he, Judas, sought an opportunity to betray him. So remember, this is where his mind is moving forward in the story. Judas is thinking, where and when can I figure out where Jesus is going to be in a private place that I can tell them and they can get the necessary people to come and arrest him? Verse 17. Now we're moving to Thursday, probably morning, maybe later morning. Don't know, but verse 17 is Thursday. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? This is why Jerusalem has been flooded with two to three million people. This is why the disciples think the main reason they're there is to celebrate, celebrate the Passover. And so they are there to do that. Where will you, they asked Jesus, have us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city. So a little side note, all Jews who lived in Palestine were expected to partake the Passover in the city limits. You have to do it in the city limits. So those who are traveling outside of Palestine, maybe they didn't have to eat the Passover in the city limits. But man, this city is super crowded. So... Jerusalem kind of fudged. They realized they needed to do this. So for like just a few days of, of the year, they expanded their, their city boundaries to include outlying areas. But the Lord already has laid plans. Their, his group is going to eat actually in the city, verse 18. So where do we need to go and prepare this? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him. Now, we don't have all the description in Matthew, but Mark and Luke tell us a description that the Lord makes it very specific who this certain man would be. Verse 18, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, so here's the code words. When you get in front of this man, just say this. Give it a shot. The teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Use that. Go there. When you're in front of this man, 
then it will go well. The other gospels tell us what will happen there, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover because this man led them to a furnished upper room that was prepared for that very purpose. So that would be what they were told. So off they go. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. I'll go ahead and give you a hint there. Not all 12 disciples went and did this. All 12 asked. He only sends two to go do this task, go prepare for the Passover meal that would happen that night. Now look at verse 20. So that is in the month, if I'm saying this correctly, in the Jewish calendar at that time, the month Nisan. And uh, am I saying that word correctly? Good. I look to Larry. He always helps me out. The month Nisan. And so that, that would have been Nisan the 14th. Nisan 14. But verse 20, when it was evening. So this would now be after 6 p.m., after sundown. By the, the ways most of the Jews at that time counted their calendar, we have now moved. Remember, some of them go evening to morning as a day, and we go morning and evening as our day. But now the morning and the afternoon, that's Nisan 14th. This is now Nisan 15th. This is the day of eating the Passover. The Passover lamb would be sacrificed on the 14th. Now it would be eaten in the evening of the 15th, verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. Jesus is reclining at the table. They're eating the Passover meal, verse 21. As they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. And they were very, picture the scene. Here they are reclining probably on three sides of a U-shaped table, the Lord in the middle, flanked by John on his right, apparently Judas on his left. And the Lord says in verse 21, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? So they're very troubled by this. They've just been told that a betrayer's in their midst. It's one of them that's going to deliver the Lord up. They've, they've known about this for months. It's now down to the time one of them is going to do it. And apparently one after another, it's like, Lord, is it? And they're asking this question very firmly. Is it I? Please say it's not me. And then another, no, 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 no. Is it, is it I? And they're all jumping in. And that one's asking. And that one's asking. And this one's asking. And this one's asking. And they all want to know, please say it isn't me. They really believe what he said. And they're, they're troubled by this. So his answer to all their questions, is it I, Lord, is verse 23. He answered, he who has dipped his hand, his hand, in the dish with me will betray me. He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And in a very heavy verse is verse 24. Jesus continues and says, the son of man, that's his title he uses for himself so often, the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. I will go how it's been written of me. That's going to happen. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Why? Woe. Why suffering and anguish and judgment pronounced on this person? The Lord says, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. It would be better for him if he had not been born 
Then, verse 25, apparently last of all, so as not to look conspicuous, Judas now chimes in. Verse 25, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. You have said so. Let's notice three things this morning. Number one, Judas the traitor. Verses 14 to 16, Judas the traitor. If you're taking notes, I want to encourage you, you're going to need to write really, really quickly here because I'm going to fly through the first two notes uh, and there's not going to be a lot of time between them, okay? So kind of be ready, but be listening. Here's where I want to begin, guys. There are some false theories and false proposals that have been made concerning Judas. And so we want to begin by saying what is not true about Judas. Here's one. Some people say that Judas represents those people who had salvation but lost it. He lost his faith and he lost his salvation. And Judas is the prime example of those who lose their salvation. See, he was, he was saved, he was one of the 12, and he lost his salvation. And so it is possible for Christians to lose their salvation. Okay, that is false. That is absolutely not correct. The second theory that is often put forward by some uh, liberal theologians is this. Ju- guys, Judas is not actually a bad guy. Judas has, had these good intentions. All he was really wanting to do was put Jesus in a position where he had to really reveal who he is. Like reveal who he really is to people and kind of by doing that, bring it to a point of conflict so we could hasten Jesus to go ahead and set up the kingdom. That's all Judas was really after was to hasten Jesus to set up his kingdom. Well, that is also incorrect. So that note should be up already. Notice Judas does not represent those who have lost their salvation. He never had faith. He never had salvation. Preach a whole message on assurance of eternal life. And you can't lose your salvation. I won't do that now. We've done it before. I challenge you to go to John chapter 10, verse number 28, where Jesus talks about those who get saved. He says, I give unto them eternal life, eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone pluck them out of my hand. They shall never. I've, not, I've talked with people who believe you can lose your salvation. I've not had one of them yet that can explain John chapter 10, verse 28, the word never. They shall never perish. Can't lose it. If you lose eternal life, then it wasn't eternal, Right? Romans chapter 8, the end of Romans chapter 8, talks about, Paul says, he's convinced and he knows under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we can never, God's people can never be separated from the love of God. So, now to the second note, quickly. Notice in verse number 14, then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest. He initiated this meeting. Judas initiated the meeting. He's offering his services, obviously not for free. He wants something out of it. So we ask ourselves, what is it ultimately that drove Judas to go offer his services to betray the Lord Jesus Christ? I want to offer three possible, not three possible. The first one is a probable reason. The second and the third are absolute reasons why Judas initiated such a meeting. The first one, I'm going to say the idea here, it seems. I'm going to throw this out. Why would Judas do this? Didn't he love the Lord? Hey, guys, listen. By all reckoning, it appears that Judas followed Jesus because he believed Jesus is the Messiah. You say, okay, great. So far, so good. He was a believer. Right. In his head, 
He believes Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not following him for the right reason. He's only following Jesus so that when he sets up his kingdom, he will have a very prominent place. Remember, he's already the treasurer of the 12. He may be thinking, man, when the kingdom is set up on earth, I'm going to be the treasurer of the whole kingdom of God on earth. And so this motivates him. And so, but here's where I'm going to offer this as a possible reason why Judas does what he does. Write this down. All the continued talk of Jesus' death and burial started in chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 20. Again, chapter 26, verse 2, Jesus talks about being crucified. As early as chapter 26, verse number 12, he's talking about being buried. And so all of this is just mounting. He's given many parables where this son of the king keeps getting killed by these leaders, whether they be landowners or this part of the parable. And all these people keep killing the son of the king. And maybe it, it seems Judas has put this all together and he's come to a conclusion. Jesus is not the political deliverer that I think he is. And so I'm aborting, I'm getting out of this altogether. That seems to be what motivates Judas. Write that one quickly because in a moment I'm going to give you this other one because I know this next one is why he... So it seems he's disturbed, upset, angry that Jesus continues to talk about dying and that's not what he signed up for. And so he's getting out along the way. He's going to get something out of his two and a half years of following the Lord. And so he goes to betray him. But the second reason is what we know from Luke chapter 22, verse number 3. The Bible says in Luke's account of this, right before this happened, Satan, then Satan entered into Judas. That's why he went to the chief priest. He initiates this meeting because Satan himself, guys, I want to be clear. There are many devils and demons. I don't know how many. But there is one Satan. He is not omnipresent. He is one person in one place. He was literally in Jerusalem. There was a real man named Judas. And devils and demons can possess people. And Satan, not permanently, but for this time, entered into Judas, used his body, went to the chief priests, and started negotiating the betrayal and the delivery of Jesus. This is not the only time he will enter the body of Judas. He'll do it again at the end of the Passover meal after Jesus hands Judas. Judas a piece of bread to identify to John because Peter's going to say, who is it? Have Jesus tell us which one it is. They've already asked, is it I, is it I? And the Lord always said this very general statement about someone dips, that, that it's the one that has dipped in, in the, the bread in the bowl with me. And so now Peter asked John and John asked Jesus and Jesus says, it's the one that I give this piece of bread to. And then he turns and gives it to Judas and he tells to Judas, what you're going to do, go do it quickly. And then Satan enters the heart of Judas a second time, enters into his body. Third reason why Judas did what he did. Number three, it's clear I've already alluded to it. Judas was a lover of money. Judas was absolutely a lover of money. We saw that last week. He rebukes Mary for what he thinks is wasting all that $30,000 worth of perfume. Could have been sold and given to the poor. Not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He really wanted the money for himself. Judas was a lover of money. Look at verse 15. He said to them, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? What will you give me? Hey, guys, do y'all remember what the Bible says about the love of money? And I know you do, but right now we need to talk about it for a moment. Some may be here, you're like, I don't know what the Bible says about the love of money. 
In the book of 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy and us through inspiration that the love of money is the root of is a root of all kinds of evil. I think that is the ESV version of that. Notice some people have misquoted that, and I know many of you have heard that, but I need to say it. The text does not say that money is the root of all evil. What the Bible teaches is that the love of money is a root of all kind, all kinds of evil. Here's what that means. People will do all kinds, different types of wicked things if the price is right. There are some people think that every person, even Christians, have their price. You can make people do what you want to do if you give them enough money. Hey, I'll give you that for that. No, forget it. No way. What if I give you that? No. What if I give you that? What? And it just keeps going. Everybody has their price. J.C. Ryle writes the following. By the way, I do not agree with that statement. Not everybody has their price. I know some people think every person can be bought, but I believe that there are some who can't be bought, and I hope you're that kind of person. J.C. Ryle writes the following about the love of money. He says, we are all liable to the infection from the least to the greatest. We're all liable to that infection from the least to the greatest. Maybe you're listening to this this morning and say, hey, Jeff, listen, (laughs) I don't have a lot of money, so not really something i got to worry about. Ryle writes, We may love money without having it, just as we may have money without loving it. I love the balance of that statement. Internalize that because he's correct. We may love money without having it, and you'll do anything to get it. But then he writes, just as we may have money without loving it. That's a wonderful place to be, to have money, but it doesn't have you. He continues, The love of money is an evil that works very deceitfully. And then he concludes by writing, It overthrew an apostle of Christ. Let us take heed that it does not overthrow us. Whether you're retired, whether you're working right now, or you're getting ready to finish college and start working, or you're in high school and you're looking for summer summer work coming up soon, I want you to listen. How do you get your money? How did you get your money years ago if you're now retired? How did you get your income? Did someone with money pay you a fee to to render a service that was sinful and evil? Or did someone give you money to produce a product that is mostly used for evil? If that's you, you fell prey to the love of money. Guys, listen, no matter what they're paying, it isn't worth the cost to your soul. Don't work for evil. Don't be so in love with money that you'll do anything to have it. Fight against that. Go get a lesser paying job that is actually producing something that helps this world and that leads to righteousness. Many people fall prey to the love of money, even Christians, because, hey, man, it pays really good, so I'll do it. Not a good reason. Notice quickly verse 15. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. I need to talk about this just for a few moments. 30 pieces of silver. So he comes to the chief priests, and the other gospels tell us that they're glad. I I won't say too much, but 
we've all been watching the news and when one news channel that favors one political party finds someone in the other political party that has defected from that political party, they love to bring them on. Like, yeah, they used to be over there. It's like, yeah, they're, they're coming over here kind of proves that we're right. Yeah, well, the other channel has former of your, your party that's now on their channel trumpeting their stuff. But that's how they, they see Judas come and they realize, aren't you? Yeah, you are one of his... And they're thinking, this is awesome. See, this proves our point. We have a defector among us. And so they're excited, and they're willing to negotiate. Here's what I don't know. How much negotiation went on back and forth? What will you give me? Did he take the first offer? Did they say, hey, would you step outside? Man, what can we afford? What do we want to give him? Let's throw this much at him. Bottom line, they reach an agreement. But here's what's interesting. The chief priests, nor Judas nor Satan in Judas realize they're actually fulfilling Old Testament prophecies to the T. But the Old Testament, we're not going to look at it yet. I think we'll look at it a little later when we see Judas come back into the story. But the Old Testament prophecy is vague enough that even Satan himself doesn't realize it, and the chief priests have no clue. Here's all I'll say. If you guys really do not think that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, you don't want him to be able to say he's the Messiah, then pay that betrayer, pay him in gold. Or pay him 29 pieces of silver. Pay him 31 pieces of silver. Don't pay him 30 pieces of silver because this number, this specific thing is brought up multiple times in the Old, T- Old Testament. Maybe later, coming up in the future, we'll look back at Zechariah chapter 11. But for now, I want to draw your attention. Exodus 21. Don't turn there. Exodus 21. We know the law, the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus 20. More law continues to come in Exodus 21. Here's one of those laws. If I own an ox in the Old Testament law of Moses that God gave, if I own an ox and that ox gores someone to death, I have to kill the ox. If that ox of mine gores someone to death and it has already had a reputation of doing that and I did not have it put up properly and it kills someone, then the the animal dies and I as the owner die. Unless I redeem my life and I have to reach some agreement with the persons who remain of that family, like how much do I owe so that I don't have to die? Yes, I knew this animal was dangerous and I didn't put it up properly. But here's the kicker. If the animal gores someone, and it's not just a normal person, but it's a slave. If it gores a slave, then this owner does not have to die, but they have to pay the owner of the slave. You want to guess how much? What do you think? 30 pieces of silver. It's the price of a slave, the lowest ranking person in that society. That's how much they end up selling Jesus for. D.A. Carson words it this way, that Jesus is lightly esteemed is reflected not only in his betrayal. Well, yeah, obviously they lightly esteemed Jesus. They betrayed him. That Jesus is lightly esteemed is reflected not only in his betrayal, but also in the low sum agreed on by, Jesus, by Judas and the chief priests. What we don't know here is these 30 pieces of silver. We don't know what kind of piece of silver was it. If it was a denarii, guys, you say, how much, is, how much are we talking about? What did Judas get out of this? If it was a denarii, we're talking about probably $3,000. If it was a silver coin made out of the city of Tyre, Tyre and Sidon, if it was a, a, a Tyrian silver coin, then it would have been worth about four denarii each, and we're talking about $12,000. Guys, that is nothing in the whole scheme of things. What will you give me? We'll give you anywhere from three to $12,000. Okay, I'll take it. 
Let me see what I can work out. And from now on, from that point forward, he's on a mission. Hold your spot here. The only other place I think I'm going to have you turn today is Acts chapter 2. I want you to flip over to Acts 2 just for a moment. I want you to see two verses. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. So what we've been reading back in Matthew 26, remember verses 3 to 5, the chief priests and the elders get together with Caiaphas. Couple that with what we just read in verses 14, 15, 16, where Judas goes and gets with him and negotiations are made for 30 pieces of silver. Guys, all of that is the human side of the betrayal of Christ. That's the human side. That's the man-centered portion. But there's something much bigger that is going on. Acts chapter 2, we're jumping in the middle of, or at the beginning of Peter's sermon. Peter has just been in the upper room. The Holy Spirit falls on 120 people in the upper room, probably the same upper room that they're going to have the Passover in. We don't know, probably the same one. They're going to spill out, and they're going to be speaking in tongues and sharing the gospel and speaking of the wonderful works of God. And some people who are, who are clueless about what's going on think they're just drunk, and Peter then steps forward as kind of the lead spokesman for the group, and he says that these are not drunk with wine, as you suppose, seeing it's only the, the equivalent of 9 a.m. They're not drunk at all. And then he says how what you're seeing happening and here happening is actually a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel the prophet. And after he tells them that you're wrong in thinking that, now that I have your attention and others are actually hearing, hearing these people speak in their own languages because they've come from afar, they're amazed at what's happening. Peter then uses that. Now watch how he kicks off his actual sermon. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel. This is the day of Pentecost. This is 50 days after what we're looking at in our passage this morning of Passover. 50 days from that time is Acts chapter 2 verse 22. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Really listen and hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is his human name. We call him Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ. His hometown was Nazareth. Peter says, hear these words, men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. How? Three things. With mighty works and wonders, the mighty works lead to awe and wonder in people that see them, and signs. God attested him to you with mighty works and wonders and signs. They were signs that God did through him, here's a key, in your midst. As you yourselves know, so here's Peter 50 days after they put him to death saying, you guys know that God attested Jesus among you. Some of you have been healed by Jesus or all of you know someone who's been healed by Jesus. That was God attesting this man to you. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Watch what Peter does. You crucified him, you killed him, but it was all according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. If you're taking notes, make your way back to Matthew 26. And I want us to take this thought quickly. It's important that you write and understand this part. What we're about to write in no way absolves the guilt of Judas. So please hear that. What we're about to say, you're, you're going to be tempted if you were to go home and think logically. You're going to say, well, then that does absolve Judas of guilt. He can't help it. It was bound to happen. No, this does not absolve his guilt. And we'll come back to that as we get to verse 24 in a little bit. Write this note. 
Verses 14 to 16 only give the human side of Jesus' betrayal. It does not absolve the guilt of Judas, but this all happened by the plan and foreknowledge of God. All that Judas is doing and the chief priest and Satan entering the body of Judas, all that is happening according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, guys, let me pause real quick. Just like years ago when we were studying Romans chapter 8 and chapter 9, here we have this idea of the foreknowledge of God. Just like in Romans 8, 29, when the foreknowledge of God that pertains to those who get saved means so much more. So hear that. It does not merely mean that God knows in advance. Foreknowledge of God does not merely mean he knows in advance who's going to get saved. The same way it doesn't mean here, oh yeah, God knew in advance what would happen to Jesus. No, it, when you hear foreknowledge, I hope you would do like me. I hear the foreknowledge of God, I hear this word in my head, the foreordaining of God. That's the foreknowledge. It's not, yeah, God knew in advance what would happen to Jesus, then why didn't he stop it? Because it was his plan. It was his foreordained plan. That's what's being carried out. You say, well, then that would absolve Judas of guilt. All Judas is doing is carrying out the plan of God. No. But underneath these human actions is the foreordained plan of God that it will and was carried out in every little detail. God planned and designed, orchestrated, brought about the whole thing. And yes, Judas was part of it. Can I say it this way? Jesus had to die for our sins. Had to. We can't go to heaven without Jesus dying for our sins. But I'll promise you, the Jews would never kill their Messiah if they knew Jesus was their Messiah. They would go to the death for Jesus. But they don't know he's their Messiah, and therefore they end up fulfilling all the things that were written. R.C. Sproul writes it this way. About the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, he writes, quote, It was God the Father who from all eternity sovereignly decreed that at a particular point in time, he would make good use of the evil desires of men and bring about his plan of salvation. That's what happened. Read that again. It was God the Father who from all eternity sovereignly decreed that at a particular point in time, he would make good use of the evil desires of men to bring about his plan of redemption. So the last thought I want to give you before we hit the second point this morning. What are we looking at in, in Matthew 26 verses 14 to 16 and back in verses 3 to 5 and, and what's going to happen later on is actually Judas leads this group to the Garden of Gethsemane coming up in a few weeks. What does this all mean for us? Because this illustrates two things that are connected. This illustrates for us the sovereignty of God on one hand but it also illustrates the depravity of man and the spiritual blindness of man on the other end. God's sovereignty is on display. He's designed, planned, orchestrated, foreknown, foreordained the whole thing. But on the other side is man's spiritual blindness and man's depravity. You say, Jeff, what do you mean? Think about it. How many nations in the history of the world, and I'm talking about nationalities, people groups, nations. How many nations in the history of the, of the world have been called God's chosen people? One. Not the United States. We have never been called God's chosen people, though some people think we are. 
No, we are not, we're not like the, the people of God. The people of God are within the United States, but the United States is not the people of God, nor is England, nor is Italy, nor any of the others. One nation in the history of the world. So here's my point. We're not talking about just anyone within Israel. We're talking about the people who had the Old Testament. They had the patriarchs. They had the covenants. They had the prophets. They had the experience of God, God revealing himself and delivering them. So much to go by. And we're not talking about just anyone within the nation of Israel. We're talking about their best of the best, their leaders. Their leaders in the one nation that's called the people of God are so spiritually blind and so depraved that they have a raging desire, a raging thirst to kill the very Son of God. God. You're like, they don't know it's the Son of God, or they're right. They're, they are so spiritually blind, they want to kill the Son of God. The best life the world's ever seen, the best people on the planet wanted to kill it. That's a picture of you and I. We are no better left to ourselves. They were left to themselves and ended up carrying out a wicked plan that fit within the good plan of God. That shows us the great wisdom, sovereignty, and power of God to take the worst sins of all time and turn it in such a way that he can bring about salvation and eternal good for us. That's the God we serve. He powerfully makes that happen. Do you see their lack of spiritual discernment? Do you see their spiritual blindness? They don't know that they're conniving against the Son of God. They don't know that they're actually negotiating with Satan himself. Guys, let that sink in. Satan is inside of Judas talking to them. They have no clue that they're actually talking to Satan himself. This is how blind we can be. This is why we need grace. This is why it has to be grace. We have nothing good within us. Just as a fish is always going to be prone to go to the water. You take it out of water, it wants to go back in the water. Guys, left to ourselves, we're always spiritually blind and we're always going to choose the sinful path. That's what we see on display. The best of men were willing to do the worst of actions against God and His Son. They don't even realize. And oh, by the way, I'm not speaking in a way that's trying to instigate anything with Satan, but at this point, he is absolutely no wiser than anyone else. He is so clueless to realize that all he's doing is ensuring that the eternally foreordained plan of God is being carried out to the exact detail. He thinks his plan is being done. Oh, but it's the biggest backfire in the history of the world. Number two, what do we see in verses 17 to 19? This one's pretty easy to identify. We find the preparations for the Passover. Preparations for the Passover. Now we've moved very clearly Back in verse 2, we know that in two days he'll be delivered up. Now we've moved to that two days later, to the morning of Thursday, Nisan the 14th, verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Notice the first and last things in that passage. You see it? The first day of unleavened bread, Passover. Those two things are so connected in the Jewish calendar that they looked at them as one thing. Here's the way it went. Passover was first, and Passover meal kicked off the seven days of unleavened bread. Combine them together makes an eight-day feast. If you're taking notes, write the following. Verse number 17, the first day of unleavened bread, what that's referring to is an eight-day feast that began, in essence, with the priest 
killing the sacrificial lamb for Passover on Nisan the 14th, and then the Passover meal celebrated that night, which would then after sundown be the 15th, leading right on into the seven days of unleavened bread. What is the whole thing about? This was Israel's commemoration. They were commanded to remember and commemorate God's absolute greatest act of deliverance in the history of Israel. Now, I realize right now I'm, I'm tempted to just say, hey, Passover, that's what we're celebrating. Let's move on. We don't need to talk about it. But I also realize we've got some in here that don't know what Passover is. So I'm going to give a brief explanation. It's a celebration of the Jews of God's greatest deliverance in their history. What was the greatest? He's had many. What was the greatest? After 400 years of being slaves in Egypt and no hope whatsoever, no way to ever get themselves out of slavery. I mean, they just don't have the power. God sent Israel, a deliverer, down to Egypt. And through that man, God brought nine plagues on the nation of Egypt to let his people go. But Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then it took the tenth plague. And the tenth plague was the one that actually crushed him and broke him so that the next day he rises up and tells, not only am I going to let you go in your freedom, I want you to get out of my country. And he runs them off. What was that occasion? It was Passover. God sent on Passover night the death angel. And the death angel went throughout all the land of Egypt, killing all the firstborn children, and all the firstborn animals, all beasts. Some of you this morning, raise your hand. If you're the first, firstborn in your family, you're the absolute, I'm the third in my family. Would you raise your hand? You're the firstborn. Look around, pretty good percentage. If you lived in Egypt that night, you would have been found dead. So sorry that happened to you. You got taken out. Why? Wow, the death angel's coming. God is ready to get Egypt's attention. And they will let his people go. And he will rock Pharaoh. Pharaoh's firstborn son is killed. So why is it called Passover. Because God gave a heads up to the Jews and said, if you'll do what I'm saying, go kill a lamb and take that lamb's blood. Every household needs to kill a lamb themselves and take the blood of that lamb and you put it over your door and you put it on the sides of your door and then you go and stay in that house. In other words, you're going under the blood. You're going through the blood of this lamb and you go stay in that house and when the death angel comes and takes out all the firstborn, then that death angel will pass over your house and spare you and let you live and he'll move on to those that do not have the blood applied, which was all of the Egyptian. And so the Jews obeyed the Lord. They killed all these lambs, thousands and thousands of lambs. And they put the, the blood of the lamb over their door and on the sides of their door. And they go hide and stay and they're safe. And the death angel just passes over. And the next day, Pharaoh commands them to get out of his country of Egypt. And now God left this command. Israel, don't ever forget that. I want you to remember my deliverance of you on that night of Passover. When I led you out from being slaves to being free people of God. Now notice after you write that note, look at the end of verse 17. All the disciples apparently want to know, Lord, where would you have us prepare for you to eat Passover? Matthew gives a very condensed version. He says, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. All right, without turning there, let me tell you what Mark and Luke add. Because this is correct, but they also give this little addition. They want to know, by the way, there's lots to do to prepare. This meal, this Passover meal is very elaborate. It has lots of parts to a lot of preparation. Different phases. 
There's different functions of the meal. There's this portion, then some bread, and then some wine, and then some meat, and then some wine, and some more bread. And throughout there, there's prayers of thanksgiving, and there's prayers of pleading, and there's claiming promises of God in the book of Exodus. And there's singing uh, the Hallel songs in, what is it, Psalm 115 to 118, somewhere around there, I believe it is. And so different things are scattered throughout, and everything has to be done within a certain order. But it takes preparation. So the Jew, uh, the disciples are asking the Lord, like, Lord, it's the day. This is why we're here. Where do you want us to make preparations? What they didn't realize, Jesus had already started making some preparations. I wish I had time to develop this, but I don't. It's kind of, I, I think, I like it. Jesus says, he ends up sending two. The two are Peter and John. It is not Judas. Judas is not one of the two. Only two will know where Passover is going to be held. Ten will not find out where the Passover is going to be held until Jesus leads them there that evening. Maybe that just is part of the story, or perhaps the Lord's like, no, you're not going to know where it is because I will have this Passover with my disciples tonight, and you're not going to lead that group and arrest me there in the middle of the Passover. You do it later, and I'll tell you when you can. Everything is operating on Jesus' time frame. So he's going to send Peter and John. Here's what's going to happen. I want you to go into the city, and there's going to be a man who's going to be carrying a jar of water. And when you find him, you'll go to the house that he leads you to. And when you go into that house, find the master. So the man carrying the jar of water is going to lead you to the master of the house. And when you find the master of the house, then you're going to tell him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the master of the house will take you to a large upper room that has been furnished and prepared. So now... That sounds great, but here's what's confusing. If you were Peter and John, knowing that two to three million people are going in and out of the city of Jerusalem that day, and Jesus says, all right, go into the city, and a man's going to meet you. All right, that sounds great. Which gate do we need to go in? Just go. Okay, but like what section are we supposed to meet this man? How will we know? Do you have an address for him? I'm not giving you an address. I will tell you a man's going to meet you, and he's going to be carrying a jar of water, and that by itself is unique because women were usually the ones carrying the jar of water. But the Lord in his access to omniscience says, just go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water. Is this man carrying water all day long? And just waiting in the same little circle going around and around the city. Have you seen these fellas? going to be two guys that kind of look like maybe a little. No. Jesus just knows. Just go to the city. This man is going to meet you, and this is what's going to happen, and he's going to lead you there, and you're going to say this, and this man's going to take you to a large upper room that is furnished. And notice verse number 19, the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. One last thought on the second point before we get to the main point this morning is the third one. Look back at verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, what is that talking about, this unleavened bread? If you're taking notes, write the following. Unleavened. That idea of unleavened, remember what leaven is. Leaven is that which goes into the bread loaf that makes the bread loaf swell and grow and get airy and light. It's what makes our our bread fluffy and light and taste good. But if you don't have leaven, then you're just going to have kind of a flatter, more, I don't know, watery biscuit type bread. It just doesn't taste as good. It's not as airy and light. But by putting Leaven in the bread, it takes time, and leaven permeates the whole loaf, but that takes a little time. So why is Jesus telling, why is, why is it called here the Feast of Unleavened Bread? The first, it's going to be seven-day feast, and counting really eight days if you count Passover with it, because leaven had to be taken out of the house. Write the note. 
Unleavened here refers to God's command to the Jews to rid their homes of all leaven before they eat the Passover meal. There's two reasons. One is the primary, so if you don't get the second one, this is the main thing. The main reason they're to rid their homes of leaven was to commemorate back on the original first Passover night, how quickly and with haste the Jews had to leave the next morning. In other words, It's like your bread will not have time to allow the leaven to permeate all of it. You're just going to make unleavened bread. You're going to have to leave, and you're going to be leaving in haste. That's why the Jews, for 1,500 years, from that time until the time of Christ, have been celebrating Passover by ridding their homes of leaven. Also, as a secondary picture within that ridding the home of leaven was this. It pointed to ridding the life and removing corruption from their life. This, permeate, this, this permeating aspect of sin going through our life, it's like taking the leaven out of the dough. And that's what this represents. Take the leaven out of the house. It will remind you God's people had to leave in great haste. And then take the leaven out of the house represents that you, by eating the Passover meal, you're getting rid of the sin. You're getting things right between you and the Lord. As you're writing that, so just before we hit our last point this morning, I won't be able to describe it, but I want to give you just a quick hitter so we appreciate the job that Peter and John have in front of them. So now they know, okay, we're going to go in the city and this man's going to meet us. Okay. Here's what they would have to do, and that's why I assume it would be Thursday morning. They're going to have to secure their lamb. The Bible doesn't say it, but all the Jews would have done this. They would have set aside their own lamb for their group. A normal-sized group eating one lamb was 10 to 12. 10 to 13, 13 would be very normal. You can have up to 18, even up to 20. You wouldn't really have more than that. And this group fits perfectly within that. Here's what Peter and John would have to do. Go get their lamb that they had set aside that was spotless, male lamb, one year old, just what was called for. They had set it aside on Sunday and protected it, and now they would have to go get that lamb, take it into the city, meet this man, go to this room, inspect it, rid it of all leaven, buy enough wine for four different cups, four courses of wine throughout the Passover meal, take the lamb to the priest at the temple, and and a priest would have killed their lamb for them somewhere between 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. in that little two-hour window. Then they would bring that lamb back, and it would already been ready to go, everything set, Put the lamb and begin the lamb roasting. And now with some bitter herbs to also represent the bitter slavery of Egypt. And so now all these things are in, are in place. The house is rid of leaven. Our lamb has been sacrificed by the priest. We brought it back. We are roasting this lamb. We're going to be eating this as part of the Passover tonight. And that brings us now to verse 20. Notice number three. Jesus predicts his betrayal. Jesus predicts his betrayal. I was almost going to title today's message, The Last Supper, something like that. But really the message was, is not all about the various details of the Last Supper. We'll go into more of those things next week and what Jesus has to explain. So I wanted to just take this avenue. There's a traitor at the Last Supper. Notice verse number 20. Let's read it one more time. When it was evening... So this is Thursday night, Nisan the 15th, evening, after sundown, after 6 o'clock. I don't know how. It might have been 7 o'clock for all we know. It might have been 7.30. 
Verse 20, when it was evening, he, Jesus, reclined at table with the 12. They are now eating the meal. Remember, it's a very elaborate that has all kinds of phases to it. And Jesus is the leader. So like the father in a family would lead every section, and they developed a system where children would say, what does this mean? And the father would explain every step of the Passover meal. They're in the middle of that. When Jesus, in verse 21, as they were eating, said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. They were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Guys, what's happening here at this point in the story, in the account, I can't guarantee this. I'm going to offer this. At this point, Jesus is probably around four to five hours before he'll be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's probably, let's just assume, somewhere around three hours, three to four hours before the agony really begins in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke, listen, Luke tells us that the disciples are having the same old dispute they've had multiple times. Do y'all remember what it was? Which one of us is the greatest? Now, hear where their mind's at. Judas's mind is on when can I betray him. The other 11 are disputing about which one of them is going to be the greatest. They're arguing about that. I find this amazing, and this is certainly not in any way accusatory about the Scripture because the Holy Spirit wrote the Word of God, and it is the perfect Word of God. How Matthew, Mark, and Luke do not touch on this next thing that, praise the Lord, we have the book of John. Do you all remember how John, what John writes in chapter 13 of how Jesus addresses their dispute This time he doesn't just say, hey guys, knock it off. Love each other. Serve each other. You want to be great? You got to serve each other. The one that serves the most is the one. This time he actually doesn't just say it. He illustrates it. How? He washes the side. He takes off his garment. He puts a towel around him. He gets a basin of water like a slave. And off he goes. And he starts washing each one of all 12 Even Peter, who resists and says, you're never going to wash my feet. Even Judas. Yes, the Lord washes Judas' feet. And that's how he addresses this dispute. Like, God, stop worrying about who's the greatest. The greatest is the one. I'm the greatest in the room, and I'm serving you. You need to be like me. John adds so much that the other three do not. How do you not include Lazarus? I don't know. I don't know. Thankfully, John did. I'm not accusing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They wrote what was inspired. But the Lord knew we needed the gospel of John. Some of y'all looking at like, man, he sounds like a heretic up there attacking the Scripture. No, I'm just saying I wonder these things, right? You wonder the same thing too, and you just didn't want to. I'm not accusing the Lord. I'm just saying I wonder these things. Thank the Lord for the Gospel of John. But John's not better than Matthew because we're studying Matthew. (laughs) We love Matthew. This is where we're at. We're not not preaching John, so I'm going to stop. Here we go. Judas, when can I betray him? The disciples. I wonder if I'm the greatest. And that one there might be greater than me. But I wonder if I'm like second, third, fourth. What's Jesus thinking about? Jesus' mind is consumed with the cross. Now, I hope you'll not read verse 21 and think, man, I guess Jesus is just skipping the whole purpose of Passover. His mind's not even on Passover. No, guys, listen, I want you to write this down. Jesus realizes that all previous Passover lambs ultimately pointed to his death. This is where his mind is. He knows all the pre... Can I... I challenge you to think about it based on what we learned last week. If in one Passover, 
that a census was taken a few years after this event by a Roman emperor found that over a quarter of a million lambs were sacrificed on one Passover. You're talking about the priests, all hands on deck. We've got to get these lambs killed within a short window of time. We, Levites, be ready. You start that process, you feed them up. And we're talking about, guys, listen, the blood would flow out of Jerusalem. And they tell us it would flow eastward out of Jerusalem, down the hill, the Kidron Valley that has this, this creek in it. It would be flowing with blood from all these quarter of a million. Here's my point. Jesus is at this meal. Yes, he's thinking about Passover, but he knows that all the previous Passover lambs have all been pointing to him. Hundreds of millions, hundreds of, for 1,500 years, hundreds of millions of lambs have all been pointing to him because not one of them ever protected anybody from the wrath of God and from the death angel. Not one of them. They were all symbolically pointing to him. I'll go further than that. The Lord not only knows that all of the Passover lambs, he knows every animal sacrifice in the history of Israel. Again, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of millions. I dare say billions of animals. You say, seriously? Yes, all of the sin offerings, the guilt offerings, the burnt offerings, the peace offerings, all of the lambs, rams, goats, ox, Turtle doves, pigeons, I mean, perhaps billions of them, they've all just been pointing to this night, this night. And this is what Jesus is thinking of. Now look at verse 21. As they were eating, he says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Here's what he's saying. Hey, guys, you remember? Remember how I said a couple of days? Well, now we're two days later. You remember how I've said that I will be delivered up? I'm going to be betrayed. Yes, Lord. Well, the time has come. It's now here. And my betrayer is one of you. They had never heard this. What? My betrayer is going to hand me over to sinful men who will hand me over to the Romans and I'll be crucified is sitting at this table right now. My betrayer is very close to me right now. And this troubles them. And they begin to ask, is it I? Is it I? You know what's shocking? All we know, we're right. Y'all, I'm not, I didn't really tell you anything you didn't already know about Judas Iscariot. Based on what you know, aren't we surprised that no one said, the Lord says, my betrayer is one of you. One of you will betray me. Judas! Nobody does that. Nobody, is it Judas? What do they do? Is it I? Is it I? Their questions demand a negative, or not demand, their question, the way they phrase it, anticipates a negative response. They're really asking this, it's not I, is it, Lord? Please say it isn't me. And then, no, no, you be quiet, is it, is it me? And it's one after another, one after another. And the Lord doesn't answer them until verse 23. What is his answer? It is verse 23. Look at it again. He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Who does that identify? Listen, that identifies nobody. Why? Because at this point, they had all been dipping the bread. They're all, they're like, that doesn't tell us anyone. So what's the purpose of verse 23? Right out to the side of your notes, somewhere around there. Psalm 41, verse 9, and John's gospel tells us that this happened as a fulfillment of Psalm 41.9 where David, was it David? Yes, a Psalm of David. David wrote the following, even a close friend of mine whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. 
That's why verse 23 was given, to show this person, my betrayer, he's dipped it. It's not like now we know who it is because you said he's dipped the bread with you in the bowl of crushed fruits and nuts there. That doesn't tell him anything. What it means is it's showing the level of gravity and, and betrayal and how awful it is because this was a person who's had the gall to sit at the table and one last time have a fellowship meal with the Lord before he goes out and delivers him up and betrays him and becomes the traitor. He would lift his heel. A close friend, a familiar friend, one that I love has turned on me. Now that brings us to verse 24. I'll have a brief comment moment about verse 25, but let's kind of finish verse 24 because it's the heaviest text. He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Now Jesus is talking to the group, but I think more than anything, he's talking to this person. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him, for that man, if he had not been born. Did you catch what Jesus is saying? The Son of Man, I, I'm going how it's written of me. What Jesus is saying is what has been prophesied of me is going to happen. Here's what Jesus is saying. I know what's coming the next 20 hours. And he's not looking forward to it. It's going to be the worst death the world's ever seen. Jesus knows what's coming the next. I know full well. I know, here's what Jesus said. I know every prophecy that is in this Old Testament. And I know things that are not even written. I know how bad it's going to be. I know things that you have no clue of. But you who are going to betray me, you have no clue whatsoever what coming, it's coming your way. I know what's coming my way. You do not know what is getting ready to happen to you. If I'm correct, there sits Judas to his left with no idea that he has about 12 hours left before he'll spend eternity in hell. Probably about 12 hours. He'll kill himself the next morning. I know what's coming to me. You don't know what's coming to you. I want to give you some good news and bad news about G Judas's actions. If you're taking notes, here's the good. God used Judas's sinful actions to help bring about salvation and eternal good for all the people who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. God has used, I said it earlier, I'll say it again, Jesus had to die for our sins and God used Judas's sinful actions to help bring about the plan of God that ultimately brought salvation and eternal life for all those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. You say, then what's the bad news? Here's the bad news. Judas does not fit those descriptions. Judas does not love God. He did not love God. Judas was not called according to the purpose of God like we find out in Romans 8, 28. Judas, Jesus had to die, and God used Judas as part of the process. But Judas did not love God, and Judas is not called according to the purpose of God. Can I word it this way? It was really good for us that Judas was born. But it was bad for Judas that Judas was born. R.T. France writes the following. This is in your notes. He says that verse 24 is a classic expression of the paradox which runs throughout biblical thinking that what happens according to the declared will of God is nonetheless also a free and responsible human act. You need to go home and chew on that. You need to take that home and chew on it. 
Verse 24 is a classic expression of the paradox which runs throughout biblical thinking. Biblical thinking people accept this, though we don't understand it fully. Here's the thought. What happens according to the declared will of God. God has declared something is going to happen. God has willed something to happen. Well, in this case, what happens according to the declared will of God is nonetheless also a free and responsible human act. God declared it. God willed it. Planned, designed it in his foreknowledge, foreordination. And it had to happen, and it did happen. But yet it was still a free and responsible human act. What does that mean? R.C. Sproul adds the following. Even though great good came about through his evil act, it was evil nonetheless. Though great good came through his evil act, it was evil nonetheless. Remember what we've said 50 times. God is holy. He cannot tolerate sin and evil. God is just. He cannot overlook sin and evil. He must punish all sin. Judas has committed a great sin willfully. He has chosen to commit a sin that he is responsible for. The point that R.T. France is making, that verse 24 is making. Jesus knows what's been written of me is going to happen. I am going to be betrayed by a close friend. Here's what he's saying. You better not be that close friend. You better not be that one. It's as though the Lord is giving a last warning to Judas to heed, but he doesn't heed it. It's going to happen. Be sure you're not the one that does it because you will be held responsible. Jude, here's what I'm saying, guys. Judas cannot stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day and say, all I did was fulfill your declared will. You can't throw me into hell. No, you made a choice. You, Judas, made a choice. There was something bigger underneath it all, yes. But you in yourself, you made a choice and you are responsible. He said, Jeff, wow, that's terrible for this guy. I don't know that it has anything to do with us. Whether you're watching online or here this morning, I want to, again, warn all of us. The Bible very clearly indicates that most people will spend eternity in hell. Hear that? Most people, there will be a few Many are going to say, Lord, Lord, but only a few will have actually trusted Christ. Most people will die and spend eternity in hell. The Bible has indicated that. You know what that means? That is going to happen. So for you, what you must do is make sure you are not of the many, that you are of the few. You have to settle this. You have right now. You may not have tonight. You may not have tomorrow. Tomorrow never actually comes. It is always today. It is always right now. Most people are going to go to hell for eternity. Make sure you're not that person. It's going to happen. Don't let it be you. You say, how can I be 100% sure that I'm not one of those people? I'm going to give you a two-step process. This is the right order. First, don't you trust anything about yourself or any human relationship that you have, or anything you've done or thought about doing, or planning on doing. Don't you trust any of that to get you to heaven. Stop trusting anything that has to do with you and your effort, or anyone you know helping you. Say, what's the second step? 
after you have made sure I am not trusting anything about me, then the second thing is to positively be sure that you are actively trusting Jesus and Him alone to get you to heaven. If you will do that, then I will promise you based on the Word of God, you will not be of the most who will go to hell. You will be of the fewer who go to heaven. Again, don't trust anything else except, number two, be sure you are positive. You may be sitting there saying, I'm not trusting anything else. But are you actively, actively trusting in Christ alone? Just this week, I talked to someone, and they went back and forth on their testimony. Some of y'all saw it Wednesday night. Back and forth. Like one minute it sounds like they have faith, and the next minute like, well, I hope so. And I hope I've trusted the right person. Like, man, that is not saving faith. You need to anchor it that I've trusted Christ alone. Last thought about verse 24. Would you write this here? Look at the end of verse 24. Woe to that. So Jesus is saying, I know what's happening to me, and it is going to happen. You need to make sure you're not the one that starts the dominoes of that happening by being my betrayer. Why? It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Take your Bible. Flip back a page. Probably. Would you flip back to the end of 25, to, to the end? You remember two weeks ago we were there? I'm not trying to drum this up for any dramatic purpose. I just want to do the right thing by the text. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. Look at verse 46 of chapter 25. Jesus says, and these will go away into eternal punishment. Those on the left go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And we really made it, try to make a point. The same word that modifies eternal life also modifies eternal punishment. So let's return to that idea we had two weeks ago. Now include verse 24 about the betrayer. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Write the following. Just like in chapter 25, verse 46, verse 24, verse 24 here validates that the doctrines of annihilation and universalism are false. Verse 24, the second part of verse 24 of chapter 26 validates this truth that annihilation and universalism are false doctrines. Annihilation is this belief that after we die, we just cease to exist. It was all about earth. We don't live anymore. Body goes back to the dust. There's real no, really no soul and spirit. You had a personality. You had that, that, that unique you, your mind behind your eyes. But other than that, nothing eternal about us. We just live and we die. Okay, that's a lie because we know from chapter 25, verse 46, and because of chapter 26, verse 24, Jesus says it would be better for that man if he had not been born. Let me explain it this way. I'll go ahead and say it. I'll go ahead and say it. If someone lives a sinful life and dies and is annihilated, they just cease to exist. It was good for them to, to have been born. It was good. You say, but Jeff, you said they lived a sinful life. Right. Remember, the Bible says there is temporary pleasure in sin for a season. If there is no afterlife and someone lives and they live a sinful life, it's all about the dollar and what they can get. The best of food, the best of clothes, best of houses and cars and all kind of sex all the time. Take some drugs maybe. Get by with it. Maybe it ends a little rough, but all in all, you know what? Yeah, if I had to do over, I'm thankful I got to live. It was good for me to be born if you're just annihilated. Furthermore, now this one is going to make our minds a little uncomfortable, and I certainly would not ask for this, but if a person lived, did not have faith and trust in Christ, 
and they go to hell, let's say for a thousand years, a thousand years in hell, torment, but at the end of the thousand years, they get out, universalism, everybody eventually gets saved, and we all go to heaven, is that belief, false doctrine. If they live without Christ, die, go to hell for a thousand years or 10,000 years or a million years, if ultimately they get through that and on the other side is eternal life, I would propose that heaven is so great that eternal heaven would even outweigh that thousand, ten thousand, million years in hell so that at the end of it all, that person would say, glad I got through that, but it was good that I was born. But not this person. And this person's representative of all people who go to hell. Hell is real. It's tormentuous. It's horrific. It is awful. It is eternal for every person who will go there. But somehow, some way, what the Lord is indicating, it will be even worse for Judas. He will not get by. And so our last thought this morning is verse 25. Apparently, after all the others have asked, here comes Judas, knowing the answer. He's only asking this so that he doesn't look so suspicious. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? I wonder if he even looked at him in the eye where the others are probably wanting eye contact. Lord, Lord, stop. Be quiet. Lord, is it me? Lord, is it me? And he doesn't answer. I wonder, sitting right here, does Judas say, Lord? Well, no, he doesn't say, Lord. Did you catch that? I wonder how many of you already, already caught that. Look back at verse 22. They were sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Now look at his question. There's two things different about his question. His question is framed in such a way that it anticipates a negative answer. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? Two things different. He never calls Jesus Lord, recorded in the scripture. Judas never calls Jesus Lord. He always calls him Rabbi. The others sometimes call him Rabbi, but they all call him Lord. Judas never calls him Lord. Judas anticipates a negative answer, but he gets an affirmative. You've said it. This has been translated multiple ways. It gets across the same idea. Here it is called, you have so said. You have said so. Some reverse that. You have so said. Some have said, you said it. Some have said, yes, you are. You're the one. Apparently, all I can say is Jesus must have said this so softly to only him that the other disciples still don't realize who it is. Because the Lord says, what you're going to do, not in our text, but in the other Gospels, what you're going to do, go do it quickly. And then Satan, in the room apparently, re-enters Judas's body. And off he goes, and he knows where Jesus is heading. He knows Jesus is going to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he goes and gets the chief priests and elders and the Levites and basically the militia of the temple. And they're going to arrest the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. My last thought this morning... Look at the beginning of verse 14. Look at it right there. Look at it. Then one of the 12. Verse 21. As they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you. One of the 12, one of you. One of the 12, one of you. J.C. Ryle writes the following. Guys, I'm not trying to cause any doubt in a Christian. Christians should never doubt because some preacher gets up and words things a certain way. I remember I used to doubt my salvation. I got saved when I was nine, and I'd hear sermons about hell, and I'd doubt my salvation until I was 12 years old. And I read my Bible and realized I can't do anything else to get saved. God can't lie. Eternal means eternal, and I have eternal life. I'm going to stop asking God to save me. I just stopped that nonsense once and for all in 1982. 
That was it for me. I've not asked God to save me again since 1982. So if you're a true Christian, don't let this rock you. But J.C. Ryle writes the following about Judas. He says, let us note here how far a man may go in a Christian profession, profession without any inward grace. See how far it can go. He says, there is no evidence that Judas up to this time was unlike any other apostles. Like them, he had seen all Christ's miracles. He had heard Christ's teachings. He had lived in Christ's company and had himself preached the kingdom of God. Judas had preached, the kingdom is here. Watch him out preaching. He's seen all the miracles. He's heard all the teaching. He hangs out with Jesus all the time. He's in the group. He's accepted in the group. He's preaching about the kingdom. Look at Jesus. He's pointing to Jesus. But Ryle's correct. Yet he was at bottom a graceless man. And he concludes, privileges alone convert nobody. Your last note is this. It's not a quote, it's just a quick thought. I ran out of space. Judas was so close to heaven, but he missed it. I ran out of space. He missed it by eternity. I mean, he was so, Jesus, when you're close to Jesus, you're close to heaven, and he was close to Jesus. Judas was so close to heaven, so close, right there, but he missed it by eternity. And he'll spend eternity in hell. They had a traitor at the Last Supper. Heads bowed, eyes closed just for a moment. I just want to repeat a couple of things and we'll pray and we'll be done. Guys, I can confidently say God in his wisdom, his power, and his sovereignty, he has the power. Listen, God has the power and the wisdom to turn like any sin of man to his glory. This was the worst sin of all time that's getting ready to happen. And the betrayal, the trial, the corrupt trial, and the the beating and the crucifixion of the Lord. This is the worst sin of all time. God has the ability to turn any sin to His glory. But all sin, all sin will be accounted for. All sin will be paid for. Hear that. All of your sin will be given an account for. All of your sin will be paid for. One of two ways. Either your sin will have been paid for by Jesus on the cross or you will pay for your own sin in hell for eternity, in eternal punishment. There's no other option. It will be paid for. Christ has already paid for it. I repeat, most people are going to go to hell. Most people are going to go to hell. Are you 100% sure You are not like most people. If you're sitting there, I'm asking you to just really search your heart. Everybody, this is a great time. Judas was one of the 12. This is a great time to ask myself, am I 100% certain that I'm not one of most, that I am one of the few who actually trust Christ? If you're sitting there telling yourself, yes, I'm in good shape, I'm saved, then answer this question. What is your Bible reason? What is your Bible reason? Put a verse to it. Quickly, go. In your mind, I know I'm one of the few, and here's a Bible verse that I regularly run to that anchors my faith in God's Word, not just in a feeling. If you're sitting there saying, I feel saved, I get a good feeling, or I say prayers, or I go to church, you're in big trouble if that's all you're anchoring on. Maybe you're thinking, Jeff, this kind of makes me uncomfortable. Can we just pray and leave? I want to remind you, Judas traded Jesus for a few thousand dollars. 
Judas traded Jesus for the equivalent of a few thousand dollars. Why? He loved earthly, temporary things so much that it ultimately cost him his soul. He loved money. Don't let that be you. Jesus was patient. The apostles had no idea. Jesus never treated Judas any differently so that when he said there's a betrayer in their midst, they had no idea. Their thought did not run to Judas. Jesus is so merciful and he was so patient that he was just patient with Judas until it was too late and then he is no longer patient with Judas and Judas will kill himself the next morning. Before I pray, I just want to say, if there's any doubt in you whatsoever, rather than me do something publicly right here, I want to invite you, come find me. We'll take a few moments. If you just need to look into the Word of God and like, man, I just want to make sure that I'm one of the few who's actually, actually trusted Christ, then please seek me out. Be rude. Interrupt. If I'm talking to somebody else, don't just linger. Come up and say, hey, can we talk? And we'll go talk. And then right before I pray, Christians, I want to invite you. Christians, Let's just give God praise and thanks for His wisdom and the expression of His love and His sovereignty for coming up with a perfect plan of salvation and redemption that has included you. Everyone else that is not a Christian should be seeking out help this morning. But if you say, Jeff, I am a Christian. I have a Bible reason. I have it in my head right now. I praise the Lord that I'm a Christian. Then you join me and let's just thank God for the redemption that has been made available through Christ. Would you stand this morning? Father, we thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. It is in his name we always pray. We thank you for our relationship with you through him. Thank you, Lord, that it is an eternal relationship. Lord, I'm so glad that when you gave us eternal life, that means we will never perish. Lord, we acknowledge Judas did not lose his salvation. He never had it. And we cannot lose genuine, obtained salvation. So Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom of your plan that allows you to be a just God that punishes all sin and yet be a God that declares us righteous by forgiving our sin, by punishing it in Jesus. Lord, what a great plan. What a sacrificial, loving plan on your part. So powerful, so wise, so loving. And Lord, you just patiently offer that to us. And we who have received it, we glorify you as the great God who made it happen. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving your life for us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for driving that truth into us and giving us the very faith to believe. And in Father and Son and Holy Spirit, we close our prayer this morning. If there is anybody in this room or watching online that really needs some help because they're not saved, Maybe they're wrestling with their salvation and assurance. Lord, I pray that you would help them to seek us out. And then, Lord, open their hearts to your word, to just have true, grounded, once and for all, eternal life-giving faith that receives the grace of the gift of your Son and his death for us. In his name we pray. Amen.